Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of TV Show and Tell, the podcast that's your backstage pass to the thrilling world tour of television. And sorry for the smell, the roadies haven't showered in weeks. I'm David Bodicum, I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggie, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. Our special guest today is Graham Stewart, the managing director of So Television. He co-founded his company with the British chat show host Graham Norton 25 years ago, and he's got some very interesting tales to tell. Also in this episode, we'll be talking about emergencies. Firstly, the so-called emergency in the slowdown of the UK's unscripted sector, but also about how real-life emergencies can affect TV productions. And there's another round of our latest feature, four-minute format, at the end of the show. But first, it's news time, and uh, there's been a fair few things going on, Justin. What have you got for us this week? Well, it's been a time of spin-offs coming up. So The Bachelor, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, a long-running dating show, Mm -hmm. is spinning off onto The Golden Bachelor. Oh, right. A whole new kind of love story for the golden years. And I think... (laughs) I was trying to work out how to describe this to you, and I decided that the ABC synopsis um, was worth reading out. Oh, dear. Okay, brace yourself. Okay, here goes. One lucky older man is given a second chance at love in, in the search for a partner with whom to share the sunset years of life. The women arriving at the mansion have a lifetime of experience, okay, living through love, loss and laughter, hoping for a spark that ignites a future full of endless possibilities. In the end, will our golden man turn the page to start a new chapter with the woman of his dreams? Dear God. Is this is, is this a realisation by the networks that their audience is getting older and older? <laughs> I think I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure it absolutely is. I think it's also reassuring people that whilst it's an older man, the women aren't the same age, as in the same age as the original series, uh, which would be creepy, but probably truer to life in America. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's The Golden Bachelor. Mm-hmm. Then, talking of love, we have Love Island Games. Right, okay. So this is a spin-off of Love Island, uh, which is coming, which is being made by ITV Entertainment for Peacock, which is NBC's streamer. So it seems to be a kind of mashup, really. So basically, the competitors are islanders from the Love Island franchises around the world, right? Um, who are getting a, a second chance of love again, which presumably means they didn't do very well in, the, in their own franchises. <laughs> Find anybody, mm. and they're not only going to compete in couple challenges, but also in team challenges as well. And that's about all we know at the moment. So rather than just let them sort of swan around in the in their bikinis and do nothing, they're actually going to get something to do. Yeah, yeah, it's all so. it's, it's it's a challenge based format or whatever that means. And talking of islands, we've also got Deal or No Deal Islands. Yeah, now this one I have heard of, and I mean that is that's a, I mean I, I don't 
I don't know what's causing all of these sort of mashups and repositionings of, of existing brands. It's sort of as if it's like, we're already getting a reboot of proper deal or no deal on ITV. But who is this one for? Um, this is for NBC, who interestingly also own Peacock, which is making Love Island games. So yeah, this is really is a mashup, this one. So and you know what I think about mashups. So there's a 100 cases with millions of dollars in them, hidden on the banker's private island. And players have basically got to find and retrieve the cases in order to take on the banker and presumably play deal or no deal. Yeah. So that's what we know. So again, it's one of those things where I do find it really interesting how briefcases continue to be this sort of standard MacGuffin in so many shows with this kind of aura of wealth and excitement associated with them. It's not as if these days money is transported around in, in briefcases anymore. That's sort of... Well, that's what I mean. I mean, you know, it's like golden envelopes and things. I mean, I do find it quite lazy, but there's at least two adventure reality shows coming on stream that uh, also involve people looking for hidden briefcases, one of which I think you're involved with. Well, I don't think it's quite a briefcase. I think it's more <laughs> of a high-tech box, as as people will see, but... Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a case of practicality, though, because you, yeah. you know, whether it's a question or a cash amount or a something, it does have to be in a container of some sort, and therefore you know, it has to be of a certain sort of vague size. And like, unless, unless it's going to be like a, a dodecahedron or something, or a lunch, like lunchbox, you know? yeah, like a, 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 practically a cuboid is pretty much the sort of vague shape you're going for. And then we're like, what's the best material to make this cuboid out of? Well, probably some sort of hardware metal so therefore you know it's going to look a, a, hand, bit, a handle will be used yeah yeah maybe make it portable yeah so yeah a briefcase is kind of like the default for, for all of those mm, uh, i suppose so sorts, sorts yeah. of things so as well as spin-offs we have reboots i should say that what i think links the spin-offs and the reboots to your original question is you know why all, why all of these things it is about risk aversion Mm. It's as simple as that. You know, you could come up with a reality quiz mashup on an island, but if you call it Deal or No Deal Island, then you've got a captive audience and and so on. And similarly with Love Island Games and similarly with Golden Bachelor. But that's also true of reboots as well. So, you know, so much of what I see now, spin-offs or reboots. So a long time ago, 20 years ago, I don't know if you remember the Joe Schmo show. Mm, vaguely. I never saw it, though. So the Joe Schmo show, <laughs> so glad I got that right, was a prank show, effectively. It was a regular guy who believes that he's taking part in a reality show, and in fact, he's surrounded by improv comedians. And, you know, I think I've mentioned at least two of these kind of prank reality shows on this podcast in the last few weeks. Jury Duty, for example. So they are bringing this back with Kat Dealey, big name presenter in the States. She presents So You Think You Can Dance, amongst other shows. So that's what they're doing with that. So that's coming back. Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares is coming back um, after a decade away, though it's hard to imagine that it ever left because there are so many reruns all over the place. Um, But the good news is it's being produced by Studio Ramsey. Mm -hmm. So it's very lucky for them to have got this commission. It's it's marvellous, (laughs) really. What's odd about it to me is that Studio Ramsey and Fox, who have recommissioned Kitchen Nightmares, 
recently debuted Kitchen Commando. Yeah. So it seems very close to that. You know, I took that as a kind of, you know, next generation Kitchen Nightmares, perhaps because that was a hit. It did, it did well. And they thought, oh, well, let's bring back, you know, the Kitchen original Nightmares. One. Bring <laughs> back the original. But yeah. it, it feels a bit hard on Kitchen Commando, really. Hmm. Been a couple of interesting things I've seen. Mr. Beast, aka Jimmy Donaldson, the YouTuber, not content with coming up with these amazing sort of one-off formats for his own channel, he's now looking to see if he can get more traction on larger networks. Mm. So he's now said, well, what if we did the kind of video that I do, but we make it as a mainstream thing? So he's he said, I've got this idea for this thing, which is 10 shows where 10,000 people vie for what he says is the biggest prize in history. Now, I'm curious as to what he's got in mind for that, because he already gives away sports cars, chocolate factories, a private island, half a million dollars. I mean, like, mm. what else is there to give away? His latest video had 100 contestants from age 1 to age 100 all competing against each other to see who would win half a million dollars. Mm. And that was just like a one-off, I think it was about 20, 25-minute video. Uh, so he wants to sort of like take something along those lines and supersize it into a series. And he's tagged Netflix and Disney and, and everybody else to, you know, to, in this tweet to see if he can get any uh, traction with this. But I suppose it's a question again of is, is the grass always greener on the other side with these things? The legacy networks always seem to think online is the big thing and mm. all the online people seem to think that they want to reach a mass audience. I mean, they, although Mr. Beast is you know, as pretty big as, as YouTubers go, would say my mum know who he is? Probably not. And I guess he's sort of looking to sort of become this brand of person that everybody knows, not just, yeah. say, yeah. the online crowd knows. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I'll look out for that. So one one thing that I found curious was that the Ken Bruce quiz on Radio 2, Popmaster, mm-hmm. has been recast as a Channel 5 format. And you sort of think, well, how is that possible? Because Ken Bruce has changed to a different radio station now after many years at the BBC. He's gone off to Greatest Hits Radio. So you'd think that the Popmaster thing would have to stay with the BBC. But it turns out that he and his question writer, Phil Swern, devised Popmaster and they kept the rights to it. It was never a BBC-owned thing. So they have now got the ability to take not only that quiz to Greatest Hits Radio and now run it as part of their radio show, but now it's also going to Channel 5 as a standalone quiz and presumably they own the rights still to that while it's been on on, a, on, a, on Channel 5 as a TV show. So yeah. it just goes back to the old days of, even on things like Blue Peter and old children's pro- programs, sometimes the producers of shows like that would actually keep the rights to those shows because yeah. they they were the producer of them and, and not yeah. and not the BBC. I mean, I did. It's interesting to know where that went because I I remember when Ken Bruce left. I remember there was a he he was sort of saying I don't know what will happen with Popmasters. So he, he probably did. He was just trailing it. For yeah, no, he did. Kenny old Ken. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of old shows, uh, they are bringing back Candid Camera in the states. Oh, my word. I know. Oh, my word. So here's this show that was created in 1948, <laughs> can you believe? Did they have cameras back in then? Well, <laughs> they did. But in fact, it well, it's actually started on the radio in 1947 um, as the candid microphone. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was quite surprised to find that out. And then Alan Funt 
brought mm. it to television and hosted it on and off between 1948 and 1992. In 1948, didn't they have to sort of have like a man with a bowler hat that would like take, take, take off the bowler hat off the front of the camera and say, Dad, just hold it there for five minutes and then, and then put the hat back on. I think you'll find that, you know, Snow White was like an old film by then. Um, anyway. Justin, 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 that wasn't a real thing. Oh no. That, that was people drawing. I, I had no idea. Yeah. Gosh, I'm really embarrassed by that. Okay, anyway, so it's <laughs> it's coming back, produced by Alan Funt's son, Peter, mm-hmm. who took over hosting the show in 1992, so they're bringing it back. We had it here in the UK from 1960 to 1976. But, yeah, so, it's a you know, you think of all the prank shows that are around. Again, obviously, somebody's thought... Well, why don't we dust off an old classic with, which has got, you know, great, huge legacy and bring the daddy of prank shows back on air. Our special guest today is Graham Stewart. As well as having an interesting career path from Scottish sports reporter to executive producer, Graham has spent 25 years co-founding So Television with his business partner, the chat show host, Graham Norton. Let's hear from him now. And I'm delighted to say that uh, the MD of So Television, Graham Stewart, joins us now. Welcome to TV Show and Tell, Graham. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So I'll start really the, the most basic question. What first made you get into television? When I was very young, I made a decision that, that television was what I was going to do, which was kind of out of character because uh, I grew up in Dundee and the east coast of Scotland in a family that had no connection to media. But Something triggered in me very early on, and I became slightly obsessed. I, I suppose I was of that generation, you know, where television, uh, I was born in the 1956, and I grew up watching black and white television and, and listening to the radio. And it just seemed to me, I can't really explain it, it, this was the thing that I thought I should do. And I held that with me um, through school, and in later times at, at school, to the horror of my school, because... Uh, <laughs> Going to a, what was a, a very old-fashioned uh, Presbyterian-based school in Dundee, the idea of someone going into television was uh, really not the the plan. You were either going to be a, a doctor, a lawyer, or in the old days, a minister. So they'd mark me out as a lawyer, and that was what I should do. And I explained that uh, I would rather work in television, and they were horrified at did involve my father going into the school to say, I think the boy should do what he wants to do. Good for him. That was that was a great thing. He he, he was very, very supportive. I imagine that there wasn't a massive amount of television being produced in that area either. You're absolutely right. This was a thing that, that was really important for me and, and had an influence on my later career. Edinburgh and Glasgow, the two main cities in Scotland, Aberdeen and Dundee competed to be the third city. And Dundee was the third city when I was growing up. 185,000 was the population. And Dundee had almost no broadcasting. Grampian Television was based in Aberdeen, a tiny little studio in Dundee. BBC Radio was everywhere in, in Scotland, except in Dundee. It had one little facility very near where I lived, used to uh, do match reports after football matches on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. So Dundee was the land that broadcasting forgot. And I took that personally, and that was to influence me later. Yeah, so I was out of context, but it was what I wanted to do, so that's what I headed for. At that point, were you 
attracted by kind of unscripted television or by drama or was it just you just wanted to be in that world although i like drama i wasn't really interested so much in making movies which is what drives people i love the idea of television as a i suppose as a public service i i really liked radio i liked daily radio i liked the news i i was very into sport i loved the way that sport was covered I think I've felt it was, and I've always felt this, that television is a service, and, and mm. I was kind of reporting for duty. You then became a BBC trainee and then yeah. went into sort of sports reporting. After university, I went, to, uh, I went to BBC as a trainee studio manager, which was the traditional non-Oxbridge way of getting in, because mm. you either got a BBC traineeship, which you failed the entry if you couldn't name the Oxbridge College that you'd attended. And, uh, <laughs> I was at university in Aberdeen, so that was uh, many miles away from, from getting in there. So I, I joined as a, a, an SM in 1978, course 1980, and it was fantastic. You know, we, we were trained at the Langham, now the, the Langham Hotel. Then we went to Bush House and worked on World Service and, and all the foreign language services. It, it was just fantastic. And we cut tape with razor blades and China graph pencils. Mm -hmm. It was a fantastic experience. But two years in, my mum sent me an advert from the Dundee Courier, the local paper, saying there is a new radio station that's going to be set up in Dundee. If you're interested, get in touch. And uh, I thought, this is amazing. I, I wrote to them. This is back to me thinking, you know, Dundee deserves something. And I wrote to them and said who I was and the fact I was from Dundee and I, I was training in radio. Well, I came back in 1980 and I joined the then, uh, well, it was called Radio T, and uh, it, we set the station up. And I ended up doing the morning show from 9 to 12, five days a week, plus four hours of sport on a Saturday. <laughs> um, it was uh, <laughs> a heavy workload, but it was fantastic. And it was my thing. I, I, I Dundee had a radio station, and, uh, you know, that was that was a big deal for me. And were you on mic at that point or behind the scenes? No, I was, I, was, I, I was presenting. Yeah, I did both. I mean, this is a point I should say, because I have done, I then went on to sport and ended up on television as a sports reporter. I will stress at this point that all of that in front of mic and in front of camera experience taught me and the audience that I was a producer. <laughs> well, why did you say that? I, I, you know, I, I could do it on radio. I, I had a good voice and I, I, I liked doing interviews and I, you know, I liked linking and uh, all of that. And, and, and sport, I, I could be on camera, although that was, that was harder. But what I didn't have was what I recognize now as a producer uh, with people who do do this job. I recognize I didn't have that. I wasn't bitter or unhappy. I, I just said, I know I'm a producer, but I, it was good for me to have the experience because when I talk to people in the rest of my career, I've, I, you know, I've been there. Yeah, you've been on the other side. When you look into the eyes of people who want to do it, that's that's different. They are complete. They are in that position they want to be. Hopefully, they're good at it. I, I, it's terrible when people who want to do it can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I believe after that, London called again and you went back down to work at uh, LWT, the famous powerhouse of, of entertainment at that time in the mid-'80s. A lot of... Uh, top shows going on there so what sort of uh, roles were you doing at that time yeah that was the that was a, a turning point for me i had uh 
been doing the, the sports presenting. I did two years on screen at Scottish television, uh, which was a life-changing experience uh, and still has echoes now that, that because even though it was early days, there's still bits of me on YouTube and uh, there, there are famous interviews that I was part of that still are around. At this moment, there's a bit of a flurry because uh, 40 years ago, I interviewed Alex Ferguson after the final. Aberdeen had won the Cup and they won the European Cup Winners' Cup just uh, 10 days before. And live, he berated to me uh, his players for winning yet another cup. And it's used in all the documentaries. I have ever, there's not a year since then that I have not been asked about it or featured in a book or a documentary <laughs> because it, it, because Alex Ferguson is such a, a powerful and iconic figure. And this summed up his perfectionism. Um, it also put my name in the books. Uh, the, 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 the game was so boring. <laughs> that cup final that Aberdeen won in, in the last few minutes in the extra time. And uh, the game was so boring that, that I, I was put forward as a man of the match. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because that was the only interesting thing that, that, that happened in it. That's my, <laughs> my, my claim to do. Anyway, I, I uh, decided that, that maybe it was time for me to go back behind the camera. So I, I came back down to London um, and got a job with um, LWT. As you say, Justin, it was a powerhouse, uh, an incredible place full of extraordinary talent and uh, really, really impressive television visionaries. Where, where I ended up was in entertainment, but a division of entertainment was on a, it was on a different floor. Entertainment was on the 15th floor. We were on the 14th floor. It, it was called Special Programs. So it was run by a man called Richard Druitt, who was, I think it's fair to say, the godfather of British talk shows. He'd done Simon D. He uh, had done all the work with Parkinson at the BBC. He'd come to LWT and he was making talk shows. And what I joined to work on, which was the luckiest break I had, was Clive James. The Clive James' first talk show, which was called Uh The Late Clive James, which went out in the LWT area. And bizarrely, also in the Grampian area. So I, I, I managed to get it home as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I joined to work on it. And uh, the reason they hired me was, and this is where you know the career path works, all that experience that I'd gained, particularly in interviewing, they, they, they wanted journalistic experience, which I had. They wanted people that understood popular culture, which you know I, I'd been working in. And um, it set me up. And, and then everything that happened from then on was actually just building what was to become my career. So remember, we were trained then. We did talk shows, not chat shows, because Richard Drew said, chat is insubstantial, and we don't do insubstantial. So you never call it a chat show. So taking Clive Anderson as an ex- Sorry, start again. Taking Clive well, I worked James- with him too. I yeah, I know. We'll come to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, taking Clive James as an example, he was a... Very intellectual man, as well as, as you say, very good at popular culture. What did you learn from working from him, and what what lessons did you take away from that experience that you used later on? Exactly what you said there. It was the the high and low culture fusion, which he had illustrated so brilliantly in his television criticism, where he would take the lowest form of television and celebrate it, often in a mocking way, but he he watched it and he celebrated it. He was so well-read and such a brilliant man. He knew everything. He was writing poetry. He, he had read everything, the classics back to front. But he could watch an episode of Gladiators and draw from it life lessons <laughs> and 
fantastic jokes. Mm. Um, and it was a privilege to be around him. Just to give a bit of personal background, talking about my father, uh, my dad was a, always a Manchester Guardian reader and an Observer reader. Those were the papers that, that he trusted. And he adored Clive James and his work. And the saddest thing was I got the job and I worked with Clive James in just months after dad had died. But I felt, I, and I always still do, I thought, well, that dad would have been so pleasing. But, and particularly if I could go back to him and say, Clive James is even better than we thought. He's cleverer, he's funnier, he's wittier, he's sharper. Um, and what that taught me and with Richard Druitt, an, an incredibly talented uh, team that made the show. But we could deal with the lowest form of culture and make it funny and make it relevant but always funny. You could draw the humour uh, out of uh, out of everything and do it cleverly. And everything that has happened since, all the Norton stuff, it all comes from that those Clive James days. Because in those days, for us, seeing these clips of Japanese people being hit in the face with a brick, with uh, clips from the game show Endurance, was like a completely bizarre world to us. And we needed somebody like Clive James to explain how that, this works. <laughs> Clive was so brilliant at, at doing that. Everything he did with about the Japanese stuff, which which I, I know could appear racist uh, and a modern approach was, I use the word celebrate because that's what he was doing. He's celebrating the difference. And remember his that phrase, the screaming front man, you know, that every show had the screaming front man. He was showing how people entertain themselves at the same time as we, we, we laughed at them because we thought it was crazy. He was also showing that people could have fun and do crazy things because they were a bit different but it wasn't negative it was i think it was all positive and they, listen they were receiving all this material and and i got the chance to see stuff that nobody else had seen these enormous two-inch tapes would come in with gold and look i know you two are talk about formats many of those formats are born from that time you know from some far off land let's face it they all started there so you then you left LWT, you became a freelance producer, and you spent uh, time at other powerhouses like Hattrick and Talkback and so on. And during that time, you also worked with some other Cliveses, <laughs> uh, like Clive Anderson, and uh, I think they think it's all over as well. So that must have been fun, because that was a, two, two loves of yours coming into one place. I worked on all the big talk shows at LWT, and then got the chance to come over to Hattrick uh, to work on the Clive Anderson show. And I, what I was bringing to them, uh, that was Dan Patterson and Clive who were doing the Clive Anderson show. What I was bringing was the knowledge. They still talk about it to this day. They couldn't believe that, because they were so into the comedy that they panicked about booking, how hard it was to book. And I come from a culture where there were no bookers when we were making talk shows. We booked uh, as a researcher or as a, an AP or a producer. You booked the show. So you had the relationships with agents. You had the knowledge of how to deal with people. Jobs are demarcated. People think someone else does that. You know, I'm a researcher. I don't book them. I just write the bio. We, we were, it was a holistic approach, and, and, and that was great for my career. So when I went to Clive, they, they used to say, 
we taped on a Thursday and it would be Wednesday morning and Clive and Dan, I, I don't think they would mind me saying this, would be in probably something approaching a catatonic state <laughs> because we didn't have, have guests. And they'd come to me and, and say in their, with, the, with them, the staring eyes, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to make the show? And, and I, because I was trained that way, I'd say, well, we're, we're going to book somebody and, and it will happen. They go, but how do you know? How do you know it will happen? And I said, because I've done talk shows and I've never done them without a guest. It will happen. It will happen. Now, sometimes I would be faking this because we were in trouble, but we almost did book somebody. Again, the previous experience allowed me to, to be, as a producer, uh, confident that we could get it. But meanwhile, Dan and Clive were creating an, an incredible writing team absolutely incredible writing team which has included all the great names of right you know um if, if i'd mentioned if we're talking about succession jesse armstrong was in that writing room you know that it was uh, that kind of level right. uh, and john o'farrell and mark burton who were the kingpins and some of the best jokes i've ever heard were created there and discarded <laughs> because of the, the the standards were so high uh, yeah, that was that was fun. So debate at the moment with the writers' strike in in America that this time around the definition of what a writer is, and th- thankfully seems to be being extended to include that kind of writing because you know they're not writing a drama series for American television, but the quality of the writing and the work um, yeah. is right up there. Uh, absolutely, uh, it's a fantastic school. In America, of course, you can do that all your life because you can sit in SNL and be paid a million dollars to be in a writing team. It just doesn't happen. Writers are well paid in the UK. I must say that. You know, gag writers are paid well, the top of the profession, but not at American level. Now, right, Justin, do you hear that noise in the background? Nope, I don't What's that. That's the emergency alarm that, that Beck2 have uh, announced is a problem in the freelance market. The Beck2 are, just to explain, one of the uh, unions for the television industry, and they have declared an official emergency because of the, the lack of work that freelancers are facing right now. Yeah. It's coming off of a boom time post-pandemic when people were getting headhunted for large sums of money, and now... There's been a commissioning slowdown and, and people are finding it hard to find work with um, 85% have said that uh, in the last six months things have been quieter than normal and uh, half of people are currently not working for the people that they surveyed. So what's what's been causing all this, Justin? Well, I mean, to have an absolute crystal ball about it would be fantastic, but it does seem to be a bit of a perfect storm, really. So first of all, as we know, there's massive cost cutting going on at the BBC. Um, I think they've got to lose a thousand hours of programming mm. in the next year, which, you know, I was working it out. I think most of it could be covered by getting rid of the one show, but that's uh, <laughs> it's just a personal thing. So I'm not being interviewed by them anymore. Then there's ad revenues are right down at ITV as well. Um, and of course, they depend on advertising revenue to, to fund shows. Then you've got the cost of living going up and the cost of everything else going up. So the cost of making shows is increasing quite substantially at the same time as revenue is going down. Um, so that's you know impacting. If you think about a, a TV budget, you could take almost every line and say, well, that's more expensive. This is more expensive. Petrol's more expensive. You know, mm. and every company that supplies stuff, you know, from cameras to lights to props or whatever, their costs have gone up. 
And then on top of that, you've got general response to all of that, which is risk aversion. And I'm not quite sure how this works, but essentially because of risk aversion, because of broadcasters going for safe options on shows or extending runs and things like that, you've got less churn of staff. If you, you know, if you commission a spin-off of Love Island, most people who work on Love Island are going to work on the spin-off and, Mm. you know, and so on and so on. So, you know, the, the fewer shows, the fewer new constituted crews things like that Hmm. so yeah i mean i think it's all of those things all combining and really just i I don't know whether there's a certain amount on the shelf as well um yes i've certainly heard channel 4 say that they are good for the rest of this year and and at least half of next year and Hmm. there's no need for them to commission anything more but i think what the the independent production companies are saying and freelancers as well it's like well why can't you commission on a more regular controlled basis rather than Mm. this kind of boom and bust approach i think what worries me most is that the number of people that say that they see themselves working in tv in five years time is 50 percent as so of this of this survey that beck two did i've certainly anecdotally have heard of people that have either said that they need to find a job that is more compatible with say family life or that yeah. brings in a more regular income so they can pay their mortgage i know of one person that has left the, the industry even though they were a very competent uh, you know, serious producer and they've become an accountant doing anything to do with television whatsoever. yeah no i've seen that as well and i've been quite surprised seeing i mean I'm, I'm used to seeing people you know at a reasonably senior level you know putting available for work onto their linkedin profiles and things like that but what i'm seeing now is quite senior people who are actually putting their full resumes up somewhat i mean i think i think certainly one of them basically said I don't understand why I'm not working. <laughs> you know, look at my resume. Look at all the stuff that I've done. Look how experienced I am. I can't understand. I, I don't even get a call back. So it's it's tough out there. And then this leads on to another aspect of unions and, and power and, and so on, which is the threat of the, the writer's strike of the Writers Guild of America in the States. And they're fighting for a greater slice of... Of, of rights and residuals for the, the work that they do on scripted shows. But what's interesting from perhaps our point of view, because we don't tend to cover the scripted side of stuff very much here, but there is nevertheless a certain amount of scripting that goes into non-scripted formats, isn't there? Yes, and I posted an article that I found, a very good article about that on my LinkedIn um, page about, yeah, about whether unscripted is actually a very unhelpful word because it is how we distinguish between effectively drama and non-drama but we use this phrase scripted or unscripted but of course as you rightly say a great deal of unscripted television is scripted and it's written by extremely talented people who have a very specific skill set you know so let's let's think about what those are in the documentary world you've got the, the voiceover commentary, which is crafted and written with great care and great skill. You've got question writing for quiz shows. You've also got what I used to, and I know will no longer disparagingly call grout, but that was the term that was used in, in within the business. Uh, and grout is all those bits of chit chat that game show hosts and, and, and reality hosts and whatever fill in the gaps with. 
Um, so it literally gets you from A to B because you said, and that's the end of round two and the scores are, and then you need something to say before you say, and now let's play round two. And, and again, that stuff is actually difficult to write. It needs to be very specific to the host that you're dealing with. Um, many hosts will only want to work with one very specific person who's who's really good at encapsulating their voice, their tone, their their style. And all of these people are writers, and they're all professional writers, and they're all being paid to do the job. And they you know they deserve as much respect as any other writer. And what I understand with the writer's strike in America this time around is that whereas last time it was very much concentrated on the writing, writers of drama uh, in film and television, this time it's it's broader. Well, there's a, quite a big package of, of things that they're fighting for. I mean, one of the main ones is to protect what they call the writers, the writers' room system, yeah. where they impose a certain number of writers that have to be employed on a, on a production, and that goes up depending on the number of episodes you have. And it's, it's quite high. I was very surprised. It was something like if you had an eight episode series, you needed at least six writers or something like that. Mm. They were in the, in Britain, obviously, with our shorter runs of, of sitcoms and things like that, we, we often have just one or two people writing the entire series. Yeah. We've got two very depressed people, sit, you know, sitting on a sofa and throwing tired jokes at each other and coming up with comedy goals. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, some of these writers rooms are up to 25 people. Um, but again, you're right. That's the system. Now, I mean, you could argue that that is a quite a, a wasteful process. You could argue that it's overpopulated. You could argue just because that's been the way it has been that that shouldn't necessarily be the way that it is going forwards when every other department has been slimmed down and people doing one job that used to be done by three people or five people or ten people. You know, technology has affected all of our businesses and crews are much, much smaller than they used to be. So, I mean, there is an, there is an argument the other way, but the way that it's happening and the consequence uh, to people's careers is very present and very real and very devastating and the, and the danger to your earlier point isn't that shows are written by a few people but that a talent pool is lost yes i mean what's interesting for example in you mentioned question writers earlier like show like jeopardy they have a system of senior writers and researchers and they effectively work on the show pretty much all year round. And what they're saying is, well, now the occasional times when people are getting hired on a sort of work for hire per production basis so that they, mm. they might hire somebody to do a certain number of questions, a certain number of boards for the show. And they said that, that this has never been the way. It's, it's always been a case of we clock in at <laughs> 9.30, we leave at 5 and, and back next week. And they don't like this idea of, of like buying in questions. Well, that, that is the way that virtually every UK game show quiz show works with maybe a very few exceptions for, for very long shows mm. like maybe the chase and things like that but, but having said that you know there's always a problem when you when you do have that more ad hoc hiring particularly with quizzes where you know you you've got the same type of questions being asked in the same form in the same categories and and so on episode to episode but you know once you're three or four seasons in um you've used up a lot of them and then you've got the capacity You've got the requirements to let people coming in new to say, no, I'm sorry, we've done a question with, you know, four doctors that aren't actually doctors. And we've done a question about, 
know, four monuments in New York and whatever it, whatever it might be. And I mean, I remember with you and when you've been looking after, when you've been curating things like Only Connect, for example, and I've written questions for you, the fact that you've got not just a database, but a, but a bank of knowledge in your head has been an incredibly useful steer. These databases, they're a blessing and a curse for oh. various reasons. But even though you might have, for example, a, a very, very particular connection, like here are four TV theme tunes that have Morse code messages hidden in them. So that was a question that I wrote for one of my latest series before I left. And just for some reason that I don't quite understand, they managed to repeat that idea on all of the series that after I had left, because somebody hadn't searched for the right terms or or just just missed it in the database somehow. I would have remembered we'd we'd done that before, and because but because I I, that knowledge had got lost, unfortunately it did crop up again. That's a fairly specific example. But I I remember you steering me. That's the thing. I remember I had got. A, a grid and it was difficult to unravel because one of them one of the the four line of four had been used before but again your knowledge of what had gone before enabled us to you know to steer me in the right direction to find another four without unraveling the whole thing that was incredibly helpful and and time saving and all sorts of other things you know so in terms of a production things weren't held up people weren't held up constructing these things the graphics people weren't held up mm-hmm. so you know and i'm you know if you apply that to the kind of rhythm of writers who work on long-running shows where there's also a kind of evolution of questions too i mean you know i'm sure over time questions on the chase have evolved uh and yeah, just as the show's evolved to the tone of the show's evolved and it's it's found its audience and all, all of those kind of things so yeah it's i think if there's a positive from it all it is that a previously not un not, it's previously somewhat unsung area of our business is being sung um, and that's good and i think the streamers do tend to treat the mechanics of television as as a mechanic you know as a process rather than as people mm. sometimes they they they're so focused on the end product and what it might require according to an algorithm that they miss the kind of creative shaping and sparking and care that individual people bring to a show uh, that produces surprising results and unexpected hits because real people know how to chime with real people that are watching And now it's time to go back to our chat with Graham Stewart. And in this section, Graham reveals some of the secrets that's kept his company's flagship show, the Graham Norton Chat Show on the BBC, at the top of its game. So it's around this time when I believe you work with the person that you now have a business partner with, the chat show host. Graham Norton, see, you work on So Graham Norton on Channel Mm. 4. Is it during the production of that that you decide to go into business together? Yeah, um, we, 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 uh, I, by this time, gone to work uh, for United. It was Lord Hollock's uh, media operation. This company owned quite a few ITV franchises, Anglia, Meridian, HTV. Also had a shareholding in the new Channel 5, and it was that I was running entertainment, and, and Channel 5 gave me the chance to have a you know, blank canvas. It was there that um, I was doing a five nights a week talk show with the Absolutely's with Jack Doherty. 
mm-hmm. but also I was making a whole range of other shows, including a panel show uh, developed by Lee Hurst called Bring Me the Head of Light Entertainment, my favorite oh, yes. ever title. Yes. And um, that I needed a host for. Lee Hurst didn't want to host it. He wanted to be a team captain. So I interviewed this guy who had done a little bit of television, uh, Carnal Knowledge of Granada, but he was doing interviews on loose ends and he was in the stand-up circuit, uh, a guy called Graham Norton, and he came in and uh, with his agent, who's still his agent, and we had a we had a really good interview. I always say, I don't think he minds, that he was wearing an anorak that day because he was living in a, a, a housing association place in Hackney, and he, he you know, was a stand-up. He'd, he'd done a wee bit of broadcasting, but he wasn't exactly making a lot of money, so it was all to change. I think I should tell you also that in that meeting, which did change all of our lives, I mean, absolutely did change our lives. And it, when Graham wrote his, uh, his first book, his autobiography, he talked about that meeting, saying, look, this meeting happened and it changed all of our lives. And I can't remember it. <laughs> Just putting it all in place. But I noticed that was a line, but uh, I remember it very well. And does Melanie. And yeah, that was, we were, we were on our way and we uh, worked together and it was clearly a hit and um we were able i don't want to go into the detail too much but we were able to extricate ourselves from our corporate parents <laughs> uh and uh so television was born in 2000 and uh, we were we were off doing our own thing it's quite a thing for this person that you, you work with what for just a couple of years and then you decide to corporately marry and, and set up a new company mm. what sparks you off thinking we, we can definitely do this together well, it goes back to what we were talking about before, that some people have got it and, and some people haven't. <laughs> you know, I was in my 40s. I'd worked a lot in broadcasting and, and you know, I felt, and I'd worked with big stars and I'd, at LWT and I'd seen, you know, really great people working uh, close up. This was a gamble because I had to resign my job and I had a wife and two kids and a mortgage I had to resign my corporate job, mm. and uh, in fact, I left signing a check for the company car. So I was down on the deal to go into something that was not the unknown because it wasn't the unknown. Because I knew that he was a star, and I knew that he was he, that we had something that worked. And you know, if, if, if there's one rule in business and in, in media business, running an indie, somebody told me this right at the start. They said, "Look, you can do this, but you need whatever." creativity is going on, whatever uh, hopes you have, you need volume returning business and then everything's possible. Otherwise, you, you know, you could be in trouble. And I had volume returning business. So I had doubts, of course, but not really. I, I, I felt that this would work. Not, I had no idea it would work to this level. Yes, because obviously it's been a massive success. You, you had a jaunt over to the States with the show and then also, of course, it went to BBC Two, and then now the BBC One juggernaut that it is since 2007, 30 series. Yeah. Has the show evolved over that time, or was it just a case of setting a high bar and, and trying to maintain it as long as possible? No, I believe that the reason for our longevity is to do with evolution, and that evolution is very much coming from Graham, seeing how the audience react to him, and preempting what they get bored with or don't like. In other words, we started outrageously, and we adapted, got very outrageous, then it calmed down a little. Then, you know, we moved broadcasters, we went to BBC. All of his skills, his ability to speak to anyone and speak to the audience, but speak to big stars and always have the right question and always have the route to comedy. 
but over the years, watch the way he dresses changed. Everything about him, as, as he was getting older and getting more mature, he made the audience feel comfortable with who he is. If you'd said when we were doing So Graham Norton in 1998 with, um, you know, dildo comedy, that Graham would be, in effect, the, the, the elder statesman of British light entertainment, I think people would have said, that's, that's mad. Uh-huh. But that's where he is. And remember, too, that, you know, even when I started, people used to say to me, why are you making a gay show? I said, but I'm not making a gay show. And they said, well, yes, you are. You've got, you, you're making a gay show. I said, do you understand? I am making a show for everyone with an openly gay host. That is not a gay show. It was good at Channel 4 over the years. They, they, became, they celebrated that fact. The openness, the honesty, I think is, was a powerful tool. And I think that's part. Graham has never had any secrets with his audience. And they trust him completely. The first people to spot that actually in the in the early days of Graham Norton, this is so Graham Norton, and this is a ratings thing. It was a Friday night cult show. Obviously, we just get you know a small audience. The figures started picking up hugely, and they did they did the research, and it was women, women uh, of all ages came to the show because they liked and trusted Graham, and um, I always think that's that's been a huge part of the openness of the show. It's for everyone. It is not a gay show. Uh, that that was a, something I've always wanted to make clear to everyone. Let's drill down into the show, uh, the, the structure and the format of the show a bit. We see the sofa. We see these guests that have come together. Obviously, some of them happen to be in the UK at the same time. But what is the guiding principle for putting the sofa together? There's one thing about being a talk show producer that this is the mantra. When you say, what is the greatest gift a guest can bring to you into the show? What is the, the single most important quality that a guest can bring? And I can tell you what that is. Availability. <laughs> uh, and and I'm, I'm not being facetious. It, it, everything is geared to who and when you can get them. And and that is the driving force. That's just being technical. You You need to have people who, no matter how great the booking is, if they are not planting their expensive bottom on your red sofa, they are they're dead to you. And if someone that you've hated and thought was the worst guest ever is planting their less expensive bottom on the red sofa, they're the greatest guest of all. <laughs> That's just a fact of life. It's back to Clive and Dan screaming at me about you know, booking. Yeah. <laughs> if you create a vehicle like the Graham Norton Show, which is a powerful and effective tool in selling tickets and and raising profile, then availability becomes a lot easier. In other words, Hollywood, which rates Graham very highly, will make sure that in the European uh, promoter that 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 date is available. If you're a lesser show, you just are picking up scraps. Yeah, but even so, you will sometimes get quite an eclectic mix, like a megastar like Tom Hanks, and then like maybe an up and coming sort of uh, R and B star, and then Sally Lindsay or whatever. And you sort of go, "How are we going to join all these people together that may not know each other that well?" You then have to fill the jigsaw with the other people. You know, it, 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 there is often considerable thought goes into that. Sometimes it's by chance. The brilliance, and this is where you pay tribute to the team, Ewan Magnuson, the series producer, and Graham, and uh, the team of APs and, and researchers. But this is very much Ewan and Graham. They can weave 
And remember, Graham does this himself. There is a script meeting on Wednesday in which all the research is brought together. Graham does not turn up and say, who have I got? Mm-hmm. He knows. And on Wednesday, they weave those um, stories together. And the research is of the highest order. You know, we get stuff that, uh, that other people don't have. But Graham's magic, and it is a ringmastering thing, is the ability to yeah, make Sally Lindsay relevant to Tom Hanks uh, and make a rapper relevant to Toby Jones. It, it, and, it, and it works. And, and, you know, people, because they trust Graham, and Graham is so relaxed and good at it, it used to be that Hollywood publicists would say, I, I got this superstar. They cannot be next to this British comic that they have never heard of. And we go, but it will work. And comics are interesting. You have to be careful about who can adapt. But some people are, are very good at it. And I don't have to tell you who they are because you'll see them regularly on the show. Yeah. But that's the principle. But it is a it cannot be replicated unless you've got Graham Norton. No. And you know that people try, but you need him. And, and when do you decide to drop the Miriam bomb on people? Well, the Miriam thing was, um, you know, she was always somebody who we had an interest in. We understood the shtick that she does. And that's real. That's how she is. Yeah. When we realized that that shtick was so clever and so attractive to the audience... But we don't. We only use her occasionally. You know, now she's used on every show. But we spotted that she felt safe with Graham, and she could make the audience laugh with her stories. When she looked at someone like Will I Am and said, I, "You know, I don't, I don't know many black people," that could absolutely work because she was. It was. It was back to the old days of openness and honesty, but affection and positivity. We love her. <laughs> to bring us somewhat up to date. There's the, the live arm of So Comedy where you're supporting live acts. And in fact, one of our previous guests, James Harkin, no such thing as a fish. I believe you helped with their tours as well. Yes. Uh, so Comedy has been a great part of our work and uh, something I've really enjoyed. I always felt that, that we were a comedy company and you know I've always been very involved in Edinburgh in the festival and uh, running the TV festival and loved Edinburgh and I liked it. And can I tell you quick, so I know we're, we're probably running out of time, but... Okay. but Way back in the 90s, as we were just beginning to think that the Graham thing could work, Graham was doing, uh, as a format point for you, Graham was doing uh, the Wildman Room in uh, in the Assembly Rooms, and he was doing the most fantastic show. He, you know, he didn't have jokes, he just was himself. And part of his act was that during the show, he would call a pizza delivery guy live, and the pizza would be delivered. In the show. And it, it, look, it, just, it, was, it was improvised comedy, and it was of the highest order. And Graham and I are standing in an alleyway next to the assembly rooms after the show. And I said to Graham, you know, look, we want to get the spirit of that show onto TV. And he said, yeah, but we can't do that. We can't, I mean, I can't phone a pizza delivery guy. And I said, oh, yes, we can. <laughs> we'll do phone calls. And if you remember, that was a huge part oh, of us. Huge, and, yeah. Uh, and I realized because of Graham's speed of thought and, and power that we could do this. And, and I said one other thing, which he fully admits. I said, look, we'll use the internet. And Graham said, what's the internet? Mm. I said, oh, I think, I think we can use it. <laughs> and we did use it. Although, I have to admit, we made the internet funny. The internet didn't bring funny to us. We made it funny. But mm. um, yes, that was uh, in Edinburgh. That was doing live. And we still do live. And we've, um, we've just been seeing the bill for our, our acts in Edinburgh this year. And it looks great. Really important for us, and it's been a privilege. I like being an impresario uh, from a distance. <laughs> well, Graham Stewart, comedy impresario, we uh, very much appreciate your time. You'll be back for the show and tell item here later in the show, but thanks so much indeed for joining us on TV Show and Tell. Our pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
So just in this week, I was delighted because one of my favourite shows of all time has been rediscovered and put up on YouTube. Uh, this was a show, Crisis Command. In fact, it was actually called The Bunker originally, and then it was called Crisis Command, and then it was called Crisis Command could you run the country? And then I think eventually it was just called, could you run the country? So <laughs> anyway, by fans, it's largely known as crisis command. And this was a simulation of very high pressure disaster scenarios where three decision makers from largely from the, the world of business were brought in to see if they could become ministers in it. and uh, they they enacted this sort of uh, scenarios where they'd have to choose between a limited number of options these are often life and death decisions that they had to make so for example if there was a flood in a prison do you try and keep the, the prisoners in in the prison or do you have to let them go because it, you can't kill the prisoners by them drowning in the in the, in the locked cells for example Actually, funnily enough, one of the names in the credits is Luke Shack, our, our guest from right. previous episode, and he was responsible for effectively coming up with a lot of these scenarios and and, yeah. uh, and all the decisions you had to make. But the, the interesting thing about the broadcast of Crisis Command was that it had a, a series of four episodes in its first series. Just as it was about to broadcast the third episode, there was an incident, uh, a hostage called Kenneth Bigley, the, that hostage scenario, unfortunately, as well as being serious in itself, caused the cancellation or rather the delay of the third episode of the series, which was mm. also a hostage situation. Uh, right. So they had to take it off air, leave it a few weeks, and, and then they did eventually put it out. And mm. I think there's even, I don't think they even put out the fourth episode of the series, I believe. So I just thought it'd be interesting to sort of talk about the implications of, of when real world out of your control events happen and an impact on your series. Mm-hmm. That's a good, that's a good question. Well, we know that, I mean, obviously it tends to happen in drama more than it happens in, in uh, unscripted. I'm using that word again. Non-drama. Uh, to find a new word. If anyone out there's got a better word than unscripted, a better phrase. And if you send it in to us, then we will try to start using it. How do we contact us, David? It's contact at tvshowandtell.com by email or at tvshowpodcast on Twitter. There you go. New word for unscripted television. So, yeah, it has happened more in that than in, in unscripted. But I do remember, I mean, it makes me recall situation on the crystal maze so on on the crystal maze we used to have 50 new games every summer there would come a day where the commissioning editor would come from channel four and i or my predecessors would sit there with the commissioning editor and go through all 50 games which meant that at the beginning of the afternoon he was really enthusiastic and thought they were great and by five o'clock i i could have said it's a show it's a game in which they have to make a cheese sandwich and he'd have said, yeah, fine, next. However, what he was listing out for as a broadcaster was sensitive topics. And the one time that I recall him saying, no, you've got to change this, was a game where we had a bomb. Um, and it was a motion bomb. And they had to carry it from one part of the cell to another part of the cell without setting off the mechanism inside it. And what, what did this bomb look like? It was a white 
box, as I recall. Um, but it had wires and, you know, a counter and, you know, it looked like a bomb. Mm. It looks like a movie bomb anyway. And he said, you can't call it a bomb because this was at a time when there was still, you know, domestic terrorism was still a, a real thing on the mainland. And he said, all we need is one incident and I'll have to pull this episode. Mm. So call it something else. Don't change the game, but call it something else. So we called it a movement-sensitive device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it was called. And and then we left it in. So that's an occasion where I remember trying to preempt something that might happen. But do you have uh, other examples of where, where that's actually happened? Well, we were devising cases for armchair detectives, and one of the people who, who died in the this was a murder mystery game show. One of the people that died did so because of a fire in his workshop. And unfortunately, the Grenfell fire oh, happened. Right, yeah. And more poignantly, actually, we could almost virtually see the Grenfell Tower from our offices. It was probably less than a mile away. And the office actually got a number of donations and supplies yeah, gathered yeah. And, and sent them across yeah. to families who survived but had to be displaced and moved yeah. elsewhere. And so the commissioner just said, well, you can't do a fire now, which was, I, I understand that, but I also didn't understand it for two reasons. One is that we were making a show that was going to probably go out in about nine months' time. So although it wouldn't have been forgotten as this incident, it wouldn't have been anything like as relevant at the time. And then also, literally two weeks after this happened, there was a fire on EastEnders anyway. Yeah, which had probably been two years in the planning. Yeah, um, and, and it's like, well, the number of shows that would have somehow involved some kind of fire of, of some kind whether it's a soap opera or a drama or a film or something, it would have been several times a week, had a thought. So I felt it was a slight uh, overreaction. I know it came from a good place, yeah. but it still f- felt a little strange. Yeah. I did find a couple of other instances. A good friend of ours, David Croft, who you know from Crystal Maze Times as well, he had a show called well, it was either called X-Fire or Crossfire. I don't think they had ever quite <laughs> found out which, what it should be called, but that had to be pulled because I think of the uh, military operations in Afghanistan. So even though this was a paintballing game show, right. it's still nevertheless... But it was a paintballing game show that had been sort of lifted out of a paintball studio and into sort of simulated real-world scenarios, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was based around... It was some sort of just used airport was it or something like that i don't remember but, that but i do remember that each story you know had a had a story attached to a kind of you know movie a movie type story attached to it so it was that that was what was lifting it into the kind of television reality entertainment mm-hmm. zone mm-hmm. yes i remember i was i had to look this up but i remember there was an episode of family guy where the griffin family were riding out hurricane and it coincided with the worst tornado outbreak right. um, in American history, um, which sort of hit America, hit the States the, the week before. And so that was a fairly straightforwardly good reason to postpone it. There's, there was a Japanese show called Dero where people had to escape sort of fantasy scenarios that you see in the film, sort of like the 
Indiana Jones kind of running after, running in front of a boulder kind of thing. Yeah. Right? And uh, that was cut short because of the earthquake and tsunami on Honshu, because some of the challenges on that show did involve like people trying to escape a water scenario or, or something right. like that. But all they really did is they just repackaged it ironically, as an Indiana Jones-themed game show. So they just push the more fantasy side of things, oh. and, and they, they call it Torre instead, T-O-R-E. So I suppose that's the kind of the lesson here, is that if you are going to come up with something that mimics the real world, you're playing with fire, unless the whole thing is obviously fantasy enough, positioned in such a way that you can't believe it's anything to do with the real world. Yeah. I mean, I think it is very difficult for things like soaps, for example, because the storylines are written such a long time in advance and then they're built up, built up to gradually, sometimes over years. So if you're going to have a, you know, plane crash in Emmerdale or whatever, um, where certain cast members are going to leave, then yeah, that may well be two, three years in the planning and this, all the scripts that have led up to it are leading up to it. Um, so it isn't that simple. Um, to say, well, let's not do the plane crash then, you know, or even to, you know, postpone it because you haven't got episodes in between. And those episodes, if you write them suddenly, are going to have to be like holding episodes because you, you know, all the plots are, all the subplots are all moving on separately. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a show that does involve some disaster scenarios at the moment and, you know, when you suggested this topic, I was thinking, what would we do in this situation or that situation? And it's something that actually I'll need to go back to them and talk about. So that's some examples then. And I suppose the key thing is you, you can't legislate for everything. Be aware that these things might happen and, and you've just got to somewhat busk it and, and, and lean on your commissioner wants to do and, and, and try and see if there's a way of either delaying things or recasting whatever you can to, to ride out the storm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think postponement is probably the, the, the first tool in the box, you know, whether it's by, you know, a week or a couple of weeks or a month, whatever. Yeah. So we're back with Graham Stewart. And Graham, uh, we would like to see what you've brought to show and tell us. Okay, well, I, I've lugged in um, quite a large piece of furniture. This, this <laughs> as you can see, is a mid-century classic uh, hardwood, illegal hardwood uh, desk. And you may recognize it because that is a desk that Graham used in So Graham Norton. It, so it's got the drawers at the side, and, it, and it's, a, it's a lovely piece of furniture. It's very battered now because we've used it for other things. But the reason I want to use it for this is that it symbolizes what we did to the talk show format. And, and because I'm of, of the nature of this show, I can, I'm able to do this. This is not too TV wanky, for uh, <laughs> if I can use that phrase. What we wanted to do was subvert American talk shows. You know the geography of, of the talk show, Johnny Carson thing, camera right is the host with the microphone and the camera left are the guests. Well, we wanted to subvert all that. We had the desk on the set, but Graham sat in front of the desk. Mm. Now, this is where people think, oh, how pathetic. What was good about it? This was, <laughs> this was revolutionary, <laughs> which no studio director ever liked. But if you remember, Graham sat in front of the desk, did the interview, turned to the desk to get stuff out, you know, whether it was a, sex toy or a, a photograph we get that but 
importantly, against all the rules of TV grammar, he would turn and, uh, you know, practically work on his computer. We used Steadicam. That was in, in, the, in Sogar Norton. We were early adopters of Steadicam. We used Steadicam. So we could get in over the shoulder and do, do that. But that desk, which we kept, is so battered now. It, it's, it's symbolic. It's very important. I'd like it to go into a museum sometime and say, this is the desk that someone sat in front of and changed <laughs> the world. Maybe you can go next to that where Kirsty Young perched on the desk for Channel 5. And, exactly. And things like that. There could be a whole museum of TV desks. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, yeah. you know, they yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> That's great. a great story. Well, thank you for bringing in your enormous desk, Graham. I'm not sure how we're going to get it back out of the <laughs> podcast studio, but we'll we'll leave it with us. We'll we'll, we'll find well, out a way. Um, do do uh, if I can get some help now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we can definitely do it. Yeah, right. great. That's thanks very much, oh, uh, Graham. Thanks again for your time on TV Show and Tell. Pleasure. Thank you. So it's time for our. Still quite new feature, four-minute format, where me and Justin have got four minutes to come up with a new format for something, and we have a random stimulus in the form of a keyword. I have to say, Justin, we've had rave reviews for four-minute format. Okay. At least one person has liked it. So <laughs> that, it? I think it's more than maybe <laughs> people have what, like... Was it a Mrs. Fake... Trellis? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've got my highly expensive cards from one to six. What would you like? Uh, one. Well, one. Okay. All right, the word is is warning. 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 That's, that is the word we're going to go with. So our four minutes starts now. Okay, so warning is it's a good word because it's a, it's a narrative word. And by, what, by that, I suppose I mean that it's something that implies a story, which is always helpful for developing a show. Um, you know, a word like book or stone or whatever don't necessarily do that, but warning suggests that something's happening or something's about to happen. So, so who's giving the warning? Is it, is it a family member? Is it a friend? That they're, is it, I can see various intervention-type formats. Mm. People saying, like, if, you know, say you want to go on this roller coaster next year, but you're, you're too overweight to go on it now, so I'm giving you a warning now so you can do something about it before it... Yeah, that's, that's possible. That reminds me of there's a, there's a dating format at the moment where you've got two, where you've got overweight guys trying to get to the villa of girls, but the corridor between them is too narrow. Do you know that actually used to happen? They used to make the gaps in monks cloister a certain size so that the monks going between the kitchen and the bedroom couldn't get too fat. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great story. I didn't know that. Yeah. So what do you have? You have a three minute warning. So. We've just been talking about disaster scenarios, so hmm. you know that's a quite a good title, isn't it? Three minute warning. Yeah, um, that's quite good actually. So we could have a set of scenarios where <laughs> we've got maybe we've got ten things that ten awful things that can happen, and you've got people and they've got a th- they get they get a three minute warning and they've got to get out or they've got to get out with their possessions or, or um, um, there's a flood going to rise up. You said about, you compressed about three different ideas into Sorry. one sentence. There. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, could be as you said, it could be like yeah, I know, you've got to protect this glass bowl from being destroyed or whatever. But yeah, various things could potentially happen to it. So you've got to protect it. You've got to do something to protect it. But that that thing might happen in three minutes. But yeah, as you said, it could be like like a disaster prepper type format where. Uh, 
in the event of a three minute warning, like you could almost gamify it and sort of go like, uh, say like score people on, on how, how well they would perform un- under the, mm. you know, if, if, if we ran a fake three minute warning scenario, like how, how would they perform in, in terms of, Getting ready? Would they reach the shelter in time? Would they have forgotten the key to lock the door? Would they have enough food down there, and all that kind of thing? So, one of the things that we sometimes do in development is to take that kind of idea and then really abstract it. So, you start off with something quite literal, which is a you know, three-minute warning of a some kind of disaster scenario you've got to fix, hmm. and then you try to extract the kind of concept of that and put it into much simpler terms. Yeah. So, if Let's say, for example, it was a Q and A show. What would what would a three minute warning do? That means you've got you've got three minutes. Let's say, for example, in three minutes you're going to have to answer questions on so and so, and you've got therefore you've got a three minute warning to ram as much information, as much knowledge as you can mm-hmm. before the siren goes off. When the siren goes off, you've got ten questions to answer, rapid fire questions to answer. And that's our four minutes, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, so, at least it wasn't three minutes. You, didn't, you should have given me a three-minute warning three minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> so we have to come up with a log line for that. Well, we, we know that the title is going to be three-minute warning. That seems to be a very good title. Um, I, I think the most practical of the scenarios is the one you came up with at the end there cramming or preparations sort of game so so we know that the title is three minute warning and it might be something like you're here to answer questions and you've done no revision this is your three minute warning very good but there you are that'll that's do. it marvelous there we go well that's for this time if you want to contact the show you can do so by emailing contact at tvshowandtell.com or you can twitter us at TV show podcast. So I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And that has been TV show and tell. <laughs>